This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Susan, you look so refreshed. I am. I just spent a few days away. I saw a beautiful meteor shower. Oh, a meteor shower. The Geminid meteor shower. Ooh, you're showered North Carolina. I love meteors. I love meteor showers. And I know this is a very geeky passion of mine, but I actually watched a little bit of the Geminid meteor shower on the internet. Wow. <laughs> because it was way too cold to yeah, go it's outside. Much nicer it inside. was very cold, but it was it, in in person. It was pretty that spectacular. So, speaking of heavenly objects, uh-huh. have you guys seen this amazing report about this odd, long, thin, pointy asteroid that may be an alien space probe? Is it just is it, is it like is it approaching Earth? Earth to, to it is. There's another misery. probe we have to worry about. <laughs> yes, another, <laughs> another probe, an extraterrestrial probe. So if they come to save us, <laughs> <laughs> if only the reliably uh, colorful British press, the Sun, reports that this cigar-shaped asteroid could be an alien spaceship mm. with broken engines. Top astronomer claims. The Brits are so polite. Cigar shaped. Cigar shaped. <laughs> hey, sometimes a cigar shaped asteroid is just a cigar shaped asteroid. We should make contact with the asteroid and be like, just keep going. There's nothing to see. Trust us. Go to the next pit stop. This year's really not worth your time. Well, it's going to take a while to get here. It's still twice as far from us as the sun is oh so. okay so not in time for christmas unfortunately but it'll pro- we'll probably get here before trump gets impeached so oh, all right well something to watch for in disguise <laughs> hello and welcome to rational security the probing the probe edition i'm shane harris probing report i'm a probing reporter i probe you're probative i probative am i probative Am I on probation after this payroll I don't want to probe too deeply into that. Oh, God. <laughs> if we probe this analogy any further. Just like, like, if there are any new podcast listeners who are like, I did not think this was an astrological <laughs> or an astronomical podcast. I was looking for Neil deGrasse Tyson. Just like like Trump's, like, you know, Trump's lawyers have their lawyers. The special counsel needs a special counsel. Yeah. Like, we're and just right. We need to investigate the investigation. Double up on stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah, how at what point do you like you basically if you go to work at the White House you just do need a lawyer now, right? You think it's like part of the paperwork like when you sign up, the onboarding they're like, and here's a list of attorneys we recommend for you. So like we're kind of, we're laughing about this, but I actually think this is a no, serious. serious point. Look <laughs> yeah. like uh, White House officials, their uh, legal costs are not covered by the White yeah. House. There were a lot of Bill Clinton staffers who ended up with very significant legal bills. So if you're going to the White House, get yourself a lawyer. Get that now. base salary. Deduct from that, and then that's what your take home is. That's sweet GS. Yeah. Just, uh... All right, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy and Tamara Kaufman Wittis. 
Hey, Shane. Dr. Wittis, if you're nasty. <laughs> I love that you did it on your Twitter feed. I love that Twitter lets you do silly yeah. things like that on your Twitter feed. I love early Janet Jackson references. And no Ben. And no Ben. off in the Middle East. Ben is in Israel. Brokering peace, potentially. Brokering peace. Or catalyzing conflict, as yeah. the case may be. One or the other. He's good at or both. <laughs> exactly. It just depends on his mood. <laughs> oh, this week on the podcast, Republicans question the integrity of Russia, Robert of Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, or however you say it. President Trump says he will move the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, but not until Ben gets back. And Secretary of State Rex Tillerson gives a year-end address or is it a farewell to State Department employees? Uh, so let's talk about the, the probing of probes. Um, the I think it's long been the plan B for President Trump's legal team once it became obvious to the president that despite his lawyer's assurances, Bob Mueller was not going to have his investigation wrapped up with a pretty bow in time for Christmas at the end of the year, that this was going to move on to – a attack on the team itself and they were going to go on more on the offensive. And the lawyers have been signaling this for quite some time, saying we're being extremely cooperative with Bob Mueller, but we want to make sure this investigation is fair and doesn't cross any red lines. So um, enter a series of text messages uh, that an FBI agent who had been assigned to the team was having before the election where they were uh, um, expressing deep anxiety about the election of Donald Trump, the potential election. Um, now questions being raised about another Justice Department official and a meeting he may have had with Chris Steele. Republicans questioning whether the Mueller investigation even has any integrity left. Um, to be expected, Susan, for sure. But I mean, what do we think? Like, what is the, the, the practical impact of these kinds of coordinated attacks landing now? I mean, is this something that you think the Mueller team is just prepared for and is going to weather? Or do you sense that we're entering perhaps like a turning point where the politicization of this investigation now is actually going to to lead to a new confrontation? So I don't I don't know um, in terms of what sort of the impact on the Mueller team will be in terms of like as a practical matter. Um, what I will say is sort of this particular line of attacks is a bunch of nonsense. And that's pretty clear, I think, to almost everyone involved. So first, let's sort of take the um, the allegations about these text messages between an FBI agent and an FBI attorney. So and the, uh, wait, just to clarify, this is the FBI agent that Mueller took off the probe, right? Last exactly. Summer. Okay, um, so he removes him. In when July. he found out about these text messages, so last therefore, summer. okay, the guy in charge of the probe says, "Oh, look, here's an appearance of potential political bias." So I'm going to take this guy off the probe, and on that basis, he's being criticized for running a politicized probe. Right, but it's. It's even a sillier criticism than that, right? Like that that uh, that alone should sort of end the conversation. But let's actually sort of, okay, why are these text messages even, even coming to light in the first place? Because there is an inspector general's investigation into the handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation, right, which these individuals happen to be involved in. Now, later they move to the Russia probe, but this is the, the reason why the IG is looking at these things in the first place is because of the Hillary Clinton email uh, uh, messages or investigation. Now, the reason why Donald Trump fired Jim Comey was because Comey's team 
was too harsh and unfair to Hillary Clinton, right? Let's remember this Rod Rosenstein memo about the egregious offense against Hillary Clinton uh, that, that Comey had committed by making these things public, right? So this is how far we've gone from uh, uh, the ostensible sort of uh, uh, rationale for that investigation, rationale for Comey's firing, that um, anti-Trump messages that were being exchanged were, you know, that that's that somehow has now corrupted a later probe that they were both on. You know, then you get to the substantive question of, okay, do, does this actually show bias? So apparently they called him an idiot. They expressed lots and lots of anxieties. I think messages that, I don't know, if you looked in my phone, you might find similar messages over well, the course of that period. Well, maybe 60% of the American public would have said the same thing during the election campaign. Right. Like, this is relatively routine stuff, right? Calling Trump an idiot, saying it's scary. They also criticize former Attorney General Eric Holder. They don't have particularly nice things to say about Hillary Clinton. We should say FBI agents. There's nothing that prohibits FBI agents from having or expressing political views. Exactly. And these are private messages that are being exchanged between two people that are expressing their political views. As long as that doesn't... um, implicate the investigation that they're currently working on. Mind you, none of these text messages are sent after December of 2016. So we're already a full year. Um, uh, you know, right. So the, the mere fact that you're exchanging political views, there's nothing wrong with that if it doesn't affect your work. Now, there is one area in which there is a big problem. That's allegedly that these two people were involved in an extramarital affair. Ordinarily, that's something that's kind of a family matter. However, whenever you are a counterintelligence official, someone who holds a security clearance, that is considered a security risk because it opens you up to blackmail. And so that is something that when discovered, actually, you do need to remediate and and make sure you've addressed the security conflict. Now, Mueller, as soon as he finds out about these messages back in July, removes uh, removes the agent from uh, from the Russia investigation. The uh, female uh, lawyer had already actually been transferred off the case. I was actually on CNN last night with Garrett Graff, who told sort of a funny anecdote about uh, Mueller back whenever he was the director of the FBI who had seen that one of his, hopefully I'm not like butchering this, but who had seen that one of his um, special agents in charge like down in Louisiana had made an offhanded comment about maybe one day considering running for political office. And Mueller fired him so quickly, like he makes the comment in the morning. Mueller has fired him before the Justice Department even has time at the lunch hour to pick up the phone and ask what's going on. That's how seriously he like, handles the, you know these sort of appearance issues. By all accounts, he does the exact same thing here. He has no expectation this stuff is ever going to come to light, but he sees it. He's like, okay, that's a problem. You're off the case. Case closed. So there's no... But okay, so the allegation is that this agent who sent these text messages had some decision-making power over the investigation that could have directed it in a political manner and that somehow those decisions wouldn't have been overseen by Mueller or Mueller or detected or disregarded them. So, (laughs) I mean, there's still the question of how could this even have affected the investigation in a way that politicizes the investigation itself? A. B. Given Mueller's actions, why does any of this accrue to Mueller's reputation, which everyone associated with this issue on both sides of the aisle saw as a sterling reputation when he was appointed to this task. And, you know, so it it just it's so incredibly opportunistic that 
it, I'm amazed that it's getting traction and yet it seems to be getting traction. And so I guess, you know, we see Republican lawmakers kind of picking this up. They were questioning Rosenstein closely about it yesterday. And we also see the Justice Department institutionally behaving in a way to feed the story by releasing all these text messages and calling in the press to get them and look at them in advance of Rosenstein's testimony. So, you know, this is clearly a coordinated campaign, right, amongst Republican lawmakers, a uh, Republican-led administration through its Justice Department. And how come that such a transparent effort is getting traction with people? Well, and this is something that, to that question that it, that's, it has surprised me is that people like Lindsey Graham, who has all along been, you know, a pretty fiercely critical of President Trump and his behavior with regards to the Russia probe, is now starting to kind of pick this up too. And in a way that, I mean, I agree with you, it seems these allegations seem a little pretty thin. And there's even now there's an issue with uh, uh, another Justice Department official who was demoted because he had a meeting with Christopher Steele and didn't tell his superiors about it. And it turns out that his wife once worked for Fusion GPS, which commissioned the Steele dossier, but this guy never worked on the Russia probe. These, you know, things that arguably politically look very bad do raise serious questions about conflict of interest, but appear to be being remediated. I don't understand why they are gaining traction with people who were far more emphatic in the past about the need for Bob Mueller to keep going. People like Lindsey Graham, who, you know, were, were sounding, were, were describing the Russian interference in the election as practically an act of war. And what it leads, I think, one to suspect is that is this... It, is this the laying the groundwork for the firing of Bob Mueller? And is the traction that it's gaining among Republicans a signal from them that we're okay with the president if he does that? So, I mean, I think it's the next manifesta manifestation of sort of the politics of bad faith. So, first of all, the notion that special counsels are not supposed to be politicized. Um, so, the Ken Starr investigation, famously staffed by conservatives, including individuals beloved and near and dear to this very podcast, mm -hmm. or at least the uh, the Lawfare podcast, right? So, the idea that that um, that somehow, even if it was accurate that you could prove people had sort of a political bias, that that's been an issue historically in special counsel investigations or, or invalidated their outcomes, um, it, you know, is, is just not reasonable. You know, I, I do think that, you know, there's something interesting, you know, and, and this is actually sort of, um, uh, you know, Quinta Jurassic has written about this for a for a little bit about sort of the alt-right, uh, you know, how they use bad faith to to forward, uh, you know, as sort of a, a rhetorical device of sort of pretending to engage with you because you're going to you're going to uh, uh, act as though they're reasonable and really engage their arguments. Right. So, um, you know, what's happening right now is the the threat of the Justice Department being politicized is coming from the top, right? We it's see actually it coming from the Justice Department every single day, right? The call is coming from inside the house, kind of stuff, <laughs> right? We're seeing that it on display. <laughs> We're seeing it on display, you know, from the White House, you know, uh, the press podium. There are all these really, really profound signals that, uh, that are really concerning about sort of the you know the institutional independence, the lack of sort of um, you know allowing politics to infect decision-making. I mean, this is a huge concern of this administration. And now, what are they doing? They're taking up that argument and, their con and that concern and applying it in total bad faith to this sort of this issue set in order to try and invalidate the thing that they don't like that's going on. And so I think one of the reasons why it's gaining traction is because 
we still, and I mean we as sort of like society in general, we still haven't figured out how to call BS on that stuff and sort of say, you know, for people who've been yelling about, you know, the importance of an apolitical department of justice, you know, for the past year, it is hard to suddenly pivot and then say, well, people can have private political beliefs and that's not right. It's it's a totally reasonable argument. It's the correct argument, but it's difficult to make without sort of in that careful way that preserves the nuance and, okay, you all know what we're talking about here and, and Lindsey Graham and others, they understand the distinction. And so I think one of the reasons why it's gaining so much traction is because we've shown again and again in lots of different contexts over this year how powerful it is as a form of argument. So I think that's a really good explanation of the political effects of this. And I guess the the question that I'm still left with is the institutional effects of this, because we spent a lot of time talking through the campaign during the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails and at the beginning of the Trump administration about kind of the culture of the Justice Department, the culture of the FBI, the relentlessly nonpartisan, you know, by the book kind of culture um, that the FBI brings to its work, especially on such heated matters. And now we see an administration that's willing to throw all that out the window for the sake of an expedient argument. Okay, fine. We maybe wouldn't expect anything different from political actors. But we have Rod Rosenstein, whom we've also spoken about the awkwardness of his role uh, in the past, um, you know, testifying yesterday and seemingly trying to push back against at least some of this, seemingly trying to send signals that this shouldn't provide a legitimate basis for firing Mueller. Um, so and obviously with his own interest in preserving the institutional credibility of the Justice Department, and the FBI that he oversees. So, how you know, how much damage does this do to the institution? What role is Rosenstein playing right now? I mean, this is like it's it's a little bit, I don't know, off topic or like, you know, back on the earth to timeline. But I can't help but be struck by the conversations we were having having back in July of 2016 regarding Comey's decision to have this press conference that was all about maintaining the institutional credibility of the FBI. And sort of we were analyzing that decision through the lens of sort of that being his, you know, his primary imperative of how do you how does the FBI operate in, you know, political context while but still preserving credibility. We did say at the time that he was endangering the very thing he was trying to preserve by having that press right. conference, right? But in a year, I think we've moved to a place where those concerns are almost, it almost feels quaint, quaint at yeah. this point, that right, that these sort of what seemed so profound, you know, 18 months ago is like, wouldn't it be nice if we were thinking about things like that at this point? So quick predictions, do you think all of those are dangerous? Do you think that this criticism sticks and continues to gain traction and becomes the path to removing Mueller? Or does it blow over? Or does it just sort of persist as a kind of low-grade hum in the background? So, like, very, you know, <clears throat> caveated, who knows what's going to happen prediction. Um, I think that if Mueller's investigation unearths new substantive allegations, right? So there's a new reason to once again heighten the concern, this drip, drip, drip that we've seen, that that will pretty much put an end to this, right? That that um, Republicans will once again realize that the existence of the special 
of the special counsel is a good thing for them because it insulates them from having to sort of have responsibility and ownership and they will work to constrain the president. I think if a long enough period of time goes without any sort of new revelations, you know, who knows how substantive they might actually be, but revelations that appear to sort of capture the public imagination, um, you know, and, and this takes root for a long enough period of time, um, you know, I think the president wants to fire Mueller. I think the president has the power to fire Mueller. And so the only thing that's missing is the political moment in which he believes he can act without consequence. Predicting when Trump feels empowered enough to do that, who knows? But I, I do think if there's not some sort of external constraint, the probability rises literally every single day. So, Shane, you opened this by saying that this is kind of the plan B for Trump and his political and legal team. I'm not sure plan B means fire Mueller. I think plan B means taint the probe. Yeah. Right. So they, he may or may not pull the trigger on firing Mueller, depending on whether he thinks he can get away with it. But either way, if he can cast aspersions on the integrity of the probe preemptively, then whatever it finds, no matter how damning it may seem, it puts pressure on congressional Republicans not to support impeachment, um, not to pursue the findings of the probe once they get reported to Congress by Mueller. And I think that's ultimately what this is about. This is about setting up congressional Republicans to feel pressure to stay on side with the president. And I think that's going to be uh, I think it's, you know, it was a good bet for the Trump administration kind of going in with all these congressional Republicans clearly worried about primary challenges. But as we've seen the midterm elections play out in a way that suggests that the Trump wing of the party is perhaps somewhat weaker than we might have thought, I'm not sure it's going to end up being such a good bet. Yeah, I, I agree with that analysis. I think this is largely aimed at sort of sowing the seeds of doubt about the probe within Trump's base, who already, I think, probably were very skeptical of the probe. Um, and that it, this is it, it's, it's a matter in Washington. It's going to kind of go to the sideline and sort of, you know, people will roll their eyes at it and say that it seems like a purely transparent attempt to distract. But that it does, as you said, give the cover to Republicans to say, well, this investigation has been, you know, quite politicized and there's been some real questions of integrity and problems, which I think is why you're seeing some people – embrace like Lindsey Graham saying, well, yeah, maybe this has need to be reined in a bit or yeah, toying although, with that idea a little bit. Right. Although, look, Graham Keeping has had a pretty open. substantial transformation over the past couple of months that is not exclusively on the Russia sort of True. set of issues. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I do think we have to sort of put a pin or, or caveat that by saying, um, you know, one of the more disappointing narrative arcs that have occurred, you know, really since the since Trump took office has been, um, you know, some principled Republicans have really stood up and um, and lived by the courage of their convictions and others have not. And, and Lindsey Graham, I think, has um, uh, at this point um, astoundingly, frankly, shockingly failed on on sort of his most important mandate and, you know, seeing him tweet about, see, Trump told you to vote for, you know, Luther Strange. I mean, sort of the, the apologism, the promoting of the Trump golf uh, courses and, and the lack of seriousness now on the Russia investigation. I do think his credibility has just taken a, a monumental hit. Yeah, I don't think he's worried about his credibility with any external audiences. I think that all of these tweets and public pronouncements um, have an audience of one, which is Donald Trump. I think Lindsey Graham is has shifted because he is playing an inside game. He thinks he can influence 
Trump, he thinks he can tame the monster. And it's I think it's quite notable that the senior Republicans who have maintained an independent principled stance are the ones who are not running for reelection. And um, and, you know, Lindsey Graham clearly sees himself as somebody with a political future. He clearly sees himself as somebody with a capacity for influence inside the White House. And that's what he's focused on. He's not focused on the broader national interest. That's good because he's losing that external credibility every day. Uh, all right, let's move on to a story we promised that we would get to this week because it was breaking last week as we were taping. Uh, the president has announced that the United States will move the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. It's not going to happen right away, but it is now going to be our policy to begin uh, that process. Uh, Tamara, um, we joked last week about you know the sky falling and this being the coming of the <laughs> apocalypse. And I got to say, I was struck by the, what it seemed like a fairly overall muted response to this, um, obviously, in, in in some countries that wasn't the case, and in some, obviously, some parts of Israel that was not the case. But why 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 do you think did we overplay the idea that this was going to be um, <clears throat> sort of some kind of uh, cataclysmic event, or are we how how should we be reading this? Because it, I don't know. I was expecting I was expecting pyrotechnics, and <laughs> you were expecting the apocalypse yeah. because that's what the millenarians want. That's why they wanted <laughs> the president to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital is because they're trying to bring about the end of days, Shane, and it didn't happen. So they were, you know, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, all joking aside, you know, I I do think that the sort of predictions of um, cataclysmic violence um, in response to this were overblown. I also think that they they expressed generally a very superficial understanding of the political impacts of this declaration. And you know, I in in all the media coverage last week, I kept making the point that the president couched his language in a very careful way to mitigate the policy impact mm. to say this recognition of of Jerusalem as Israel's capital doesn't prejudice the final status negotiations the status of Jerusalem is still to be negotiated and if Israelis and Palestinians agree i you know i support having a palestinian capital in east jerusalem you know so all of that was kind of the fence around the declaration but the political impact relates not to the specifics of what Trump said or didn't say. It relates to the symbolism of Jerusalem and the symbolism of the American president clearly taking an Israeli side on a hotly disputed and highly symbolic issue and an issue that's symbolic not just for Israelis and Palestinians or Jews and Arabs, but for Muslims and Jews and Christians around the world. So when we think about it that way, you don't necessarily expect to see that impact play out instantly on the streets. Um, but I think it's worth paying attention to, and I'll, I'll put on the, on the show webpage a link to a great article by Danny Seideman, who is, I think, one of the um, most knowledgeable and incisive uh, interpreters of events in and around Jerusalem, um, who notes that, you know, historically, it's not these geopolitical or diplomatic moves on Jerusalem that spark violence in Jerusalem. Um, they create the conditions 
But the violence is usually sparked by something local, and it's usually sparked by something related to the holy sites. So, you know, the Camp David summit in 2000, the last gasp of the Oslo peace process, fell apart in August. But the second intifada didn't start in August. Mm. It started at the end of September when Ariel Sharon, who was getting ready to run for Israeli prime minister, went up and visited the Temple Mount. So it was a symbolic gesture of Israeli, you know, attempted dominance or whatever that sparked the violence. The tinder was created mm -hmm. by the failure mm -hmm. of Camp David. So Danny's point, and I think he's right, is just wait. <laughs> just wait. Because what – and here's what I think Trump really did. In making this declaration, he gave Israelis hope that they would never have to compromise on Jerusalem. He took from Palestinians hope that they might one day have a capital in Jerusalem. And it's the absence of hope that is dooming this peace process. It's the absence of hope that creates the prospect for violence. Because what's the, what's the incentive against violence when you have no Which hope? Which made me really perplexed as to why – I genuinely was perplexed as to why this, the, the stated strategy could be true, which was that – we're doing this to shake up the status quo to hopefully bring people back to the table for talks. Now, well, because disruption works. Right. It's great. It's <clears throat> right. awesome. We I, love I disruption. That. <laughs> that, that just seems so counterintuitive to me as to be implausible. Because um, it because it really is implausible. Yeah. And you know, I think there's been some good behind the scenes reporting on how this decision came about, and clearly it was on an entirely separate track from the peace process preparations that Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have been involved in. This with was Mohammed bin Salman. With yes, with this with the Saudi Crown. Noted Prince. art collector. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll come back to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> so I mean one of the things that I think was sort of striking and it's hard for me to disentangle what's kind of the you know, ordinary rhetoric we see every single time versus sort of real signals, but um, especially since from, from sort of Palestinian leadership, um, uh, basically saying this is the end of the United States involvement, credible involvement in the peace process. Because what you've revealed is that you don't have a peace plan. You have an Israel plan. And and maybe there's lots of different ways that the writing on the wall, but sort of the, this, the symbolic thing here is you have chosen a side. And, you know, the United States has sort of held itself out as this quasi-neutral arbiter and, you you know, they were going to sort of, uh, you know, the, in attempting to, uh, to occupy that role has been has been their place in this process. And now because they've chosen a side, uh, you know, on on this particular issue, they just they don't have a credible role moving forward. Does that strike you as just kind of that's the thing you say whenever you lose on an issue and, and you're mad at the United States? Or or do you think this actually is sort of a turning point moment in which, you know, the U.S. just whatever the outcome of this conflict is, the U.S. is no longer in the driver's seat? Well, I think that the I think it's been questionable for a, f at least a few years whether the United States would be able to remain the central essential mediator for Israelis and Palestinians. Um, it may be that you know, looking back twenty years from now, we'll see this Trump declaration as having iced the answer to that question in the negative, but. I don't think it's because the United States has revealed itself as less than even-handed. The United States has never been even-handed um, 
with respect to this process. And that's not why it's been the essential mediator. It's been the essential mediator precisely because it has a strong and trusting relationship with Israel and because Israel is the controller of this territory that was conquered in the 1967 war. Any territorial compromise will involve Israel giving up a lot of ground, quite literally as well as figuratively, and taking on a lot of risk. And so it's the American-Israeli relationship that helps to bolster you know, Israel's decision to do that and help it compensate for the risks. And that's why the United States put together this big security plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace under uh, the Obama administration and so on. So it's precisely the imbalance in the American attitude that has made the U.S. an effective mediator. The premise on the Palestinian side, why that's been acceptable to them, is that they've been operating on the premise that the United States would help nudge and push Israel toward compromise. And so I think what's changed here with Trump's declaration is not that the U.S. has revealed itself as not even-handed, but that the Trump administration has said on this one of the final status issues, perhaps the most symbolic of them all, we're not, not only are we not going to push Israel, we're going to accept Israel's position. And for all that Trump said, you know, but this doesn't prejudice final status, blah, blah, blah. Then Nikki Haley went on the Sunday shows and said, well, we've taken Jerusalem off the table. Um, and so the Palestinian premise that the U.S. would push Israel to compromise is what's been punctured here. So if we're just I'm going to do one more last prediction on this. <laughs> Are, is this push is us that to prediction? Is this push to prediction? Uh-oh. So <laughs> do you think the embassy gets moved in his first term? No. I mean, I it certainly it sounds as though this is another case where Trump's announced something and the bureaucracy is going to yeah. slow roll the process. And he knows that. And I think he knows that and I think he's okay with it. What he wanted to do was check the box on fulfilling a campaign yeah. promise to the evangelical base <clears throat> and so in that sense, in some ways, the recognition of Israel's capital is more important than moving the embassy itself. And would a future president, let's say a Democrat, were elected in 2020, undo the decision? I, I think that's going to be dependent on the situation on the yeah. ground. I mean, yeah. if the current trend continues and Israeli-Palestinian uh, diplomatic engagement is basically dead you know, for another four or five years, I think it's hard for an American president to justify reversing the decision, frankly. But I mean, in practice, where the Trump administration is today on moving the embassy, which is we're preparing for the process of moving the embassy sometime down the road, is that's what the George W. Bush administration's policy was, although they never, you know, made a speech about it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, speaking of speeches. <laughs> Excellent segue. <laughs> oh, Dr. you are just Lewis. so graceful, Mr. Harris. So I'm here. That's my job. <laughs> um, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had a year-end town hall. A town hall. I love when they call it a town hall. Come. Gather Come. around, children. Let's This right. is talk. totally not meant to be an airing of grievances. It's a <laughs> well, town hall. And it, it gives you this <laughs> image. Stick. It gives you this yeah. image of like a New England, you know, yeah, town, town hall. Which I bet those were pretty grievance-filled too, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> and a highly participatory. Yeah, people had some shit to say. Um, uh, as, as he gave, so he gives this town hall uh, address. Uh, with the State Department. And um, I mean, I can't help but thinking as I'm listening to it that it's basically the valedictory address 
Um, there were rumors, of course, reports a couple of weeks ago that Tillerson was on the way out. Pompeo was on the way in. Cotton was going to CIA. Then Trump said, no, I'm not firing him. Just kidding. Um, but this doesn't seem like a guy who really thinks that he um, is uh, not a short timer, <laughs> shall we say. So, I mean, Tamara, we can get into how you read the address. But, like, what did he say? And, I mean, and how, you know, he's there obviously – Speaking to an audience, as we've discussed many times in the podcast, is, you know, not incredibly receptive uh, to his policy and maybe his agenda. Uh, and it, it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage that, you know, he's been there kind of presiding over a dismantling of the State Department. Not surprisingly, State Department employees um, have some things to say about that. So what did he say and what do you think, the, uh, how it landed? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I- First, I have to say, I think it's kind of interesting that in the last month, Rex Tillerson, who started his tenure, you know, refusing to take the press with him on official travel and basically not talking to anybody as except behind closed doors. um, In the last few weeks, he's given two public speeches, Hmm. one at the Wilson Center on Europe, one this week at the Atlanta Council on East Asia. And he did this town hall meeting um, and he's just been loquacious. Before he opened the floor to questions from his employees, he spoke for over an hour. And he, you know, ranged across the world. It's pretty extraordinary for him. It was. And, you know, so you can say, wow, he he has a lot to say about each of these regions. He seems to have learned his brief to a certain extent. And yet some of the things he said were so puzzling, like, we haven't really put any points on the board. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, that he really is willing to talk to North Korea about anything, even talks about talks, only to get shot down again by the White House the next day. So, you know, on the one hand, he's willing to engage. That's the kind of symbolism of all these outings. On the other hand, the substance is not is not it's still not there. He's almost a year into this job and he's still can't show that he's speaking authoritatively on behalf of the administration on the issues. He can't show that he's achieving anything in his work. Um, The one thing he did manage to do that was concrete and received very positive feedback, I have to say, from the State Department employees, is that after a year after imposing a hiring freeze on the entire department, he's finally lifting the ban on um, family members of diplomats getting jobs helping in the embassies overseas. And this is like practically a humanitarian gesture. (laughs) Um, It's also super helpful to these embassies to be able to hire, you know, family members to help with all kinds of clerical tasks and yeah, they and need a job. They uh, need jobs, right? But it's but it's just one little thing he could give to the workforce to say, I care about you. I want to make your lives better. Uh, so Merry I'm gonna Christmas. let your teenage kids do data entry, you know, for the for the embassies. Um but other than that, there just isn't a lot of there there. And I think I think the the thing with North Korea in particular, you know, where he really got slapped down right away, and then even the State Department spokeswoman had to come out yesterday and say our policy on talking to North Korea hasn't changed and we're not ready to do that yet. The The ultimate message is that even if he stays as Secretary of State, even if he fixes the management challenges that he has so far faced in the department – He's still toothless. Mm -hmm. He still doesn't speak for the president. 
And so both to his employees, the diplomats, and to the rest of the world, he's still irrelevant. Right. And they know that. I I think one of the most interesting things about sort of, um, you know, the transcript that was released, which includes the employees' questions at the end, and sort of thinking about, hey, you know, he's been there almost a year, and these are the nature of the questions that he's getting from his staff. You know, having participated in, in, you know, a number of town halls sort of with the director level, You know, the questions from employees tend to be incredibly specific. This is your chance to put something on the director's plate in front of everybody. You know, you want to know about X pet project and and this issue that you, you know, people will, uh, from carpool parking to, you know, to their, you know, whatever sort of their project they're working on. Um, those tend to be really, really sort of detailed engagements um, and, and important things in federal agencies. Uh, these, you know, the State Department employees are asking questions like, where do you view the place of the civil service in your State Department a a year later. And that's clearly a genuine question. They actually don't know. Um, Somebody asked, you know, sort of he he couches it kind of funny, but he says, you know, is it is it fair to ask whether you enjoy being secretary of state? Like, do Mm. you like do you want to be here? Do you like this job? And I think, you know, Tillerson's response is. I'm learning to enjoy it. It's amazing. Right? And so, I mean, just... It's honest. It, it is honest. The nature of that interaction, which is frankly something you would expect kind of on day one, maybe, this sort of early getting to know you stuff, I think it really does illustrate sort of something about the level of disconnection that has occurred between sort of the rank and file of the State Department and, and the Secretary of State over the past year. It's like, it's pretty astounding. Um, predictions? <laughs> I actually do want to ask whether we think how much longer he's going to last because it was uh, two weeks ago. It was as if the obituary was being written. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there are two ways to read all of this new public engagement by Tillerson. One is that he actually is trying to make a bid to stay, and so he's trying to demonstrate that he's got something to contribute by doing all these public talks and. And, you know, and and trying to repair things with the workforce. Um, But the other way to think about it is to say, well, the White House is now letting him go out and give these speeches because they don't care anymore because he's on his way out the door. I, I still come down on the side that I think he will be gone shortly after his one year anniversary and the tax consequences um, that go with it have passed. Mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, he doesn't need this. Uh, he's he's never needed it. I think he'll he'll draw a line under his quote unquote organizational reform agenda, and declare success and go back to Texas and ride his horse. So I um, I tend to agree with that. Right, that the one year sort of point is going to be. The point at which we really start to see a lot of people leaving, both for, you know, for tax and financial purposes and also because it's sort of face saving, right? You like you actually survived a year and that's, you know, one year from their confirmation. One thing I do think that will be interesting is does he really just quietly go back to Texas and ride his horses or, right? I I think that I I think we are going to see a number of high profile resignations. I think Tillerson may be one of them. What I'm really curious about and have no prediction on is what does the post-service public engagement look like, right? So (laughs) lots of former officials sort of become – 
you know, slightly unchained proxies, either for the administration or for their agencies. Some of them just disappear from public life, right? Is, what is, is this going to be like the Bob Gates memoir? Or, <laughs> right. or, or is this... No, I, I think this guy is going to disappear into the yeah. good night. Tillerson's just going to buy himself a private island, like in the shape of a cowboy hat yeah. from above. <laughs> do you, do you, get himself some sun. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a great running thing that they do on Trump cast where this guy who plays Secretary of State Rex Tillerson comes out to the press to issue denials uh, and he'll say things like you know like uh, I did not recently purchase a yacht for myself and my wife called Sea of Suckers and <laughs> a private island <laughs> I did not plan to change my name and I have not been seen running down the halls of the State Department screaming this man is insane <laughs> I think the other thing that's amazing about this guy is that he's probably the most colorless Texan that we have ever seen on the public stage. So apparently calling people fucking morons in private, so. Salty. Salty. Uh, All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'm going to start with one. Um, uh, A book that I'm going to flag for people. It does not come out until April, but pre-order it now because it helps. Uh, But I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, Daniel Kurtzphalen, who's the new executive editor at Foreign Affairs. By the way, an awesome pick. Yeah. Um, The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 47. So I've been anticipating this book for about five years because Dan and I were fellows together at New America when I was working on my second book and he just started this. And basically what he's done is he's gone in and completely like using documents and accounts from original sources – told this narrative about General Marshall's uh, mission to China where he tried to broker this peace between the Chinese nationalists and the communists. And our goal was to try and install democracy in China and keep it from turning into a communist state. Obviously, you know, people said Marshall lost China. But it's kind of a – Sort of a reexamination of that question, which Dan posits is a, is a neglected turning point uh, in his career, and also a story of as it, I love this as it says in the jacket cover: diplomatic wrangling and guerrilla warfare, intricate spycraft, and charismatic personalities. So I love kind of like the revisionist history approach. Anyway, Dan's an amazing writer and a, just a really lovely writer and a great thinker. Um, so I think this is going to be kind of an enlightening book, and from all accounts, from what I've heard from people who've read it, a very gripping read. Wow. You know, it's interesting because I would put that together with Max Boot's new book, which is a revisionist history of the diplomatic side of American engagement in Vietnam. And it almost so we need one more book in this category to make a trend. But then I think you could say like our 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 foreign policy uh, analysts and experts all focused on the hidden value of diplomacy, yeah. right? Are we are we done writing books about war? Can we now write books about diplomacy? Right. So the China mission, check it out. Awesome. Tomorrow. Um, so my object is this uh, wonderful cartoon. We we spent some time talking about and Shane did some amazing reporting about what turns out to have been the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman's purchase of that uber expensive purported Da Vinci painting. Uh, a few purported, we have to say a purported Da Vinci. It, it is it is a doubt doubted attribution. Uh, nonetheless, it turns out that it wasn't some random Saudi prince. It was the crown prince who bought this painting. Um, and uh, and so my object is this political cartoon from uh, a Syrian artist. I, I actually, it's not a guy I know. 
Um, but, you know, the, the whole issue of Saudi-Israeli rapprochement, which is something we've talked about a lot, is very controversial in the region. And here this, Saudi, this Syrian cartoonist is kind of using the, the painting issue um, as a way of tweaking both the Israelis and the Saudis on their, um, their, new, their newfound cooperation. It's got Bibi Netanyahu running in one direction, carrying off the golden dome of the rock from Jerusalem, <laughs> and Mohammed bin Salman uh, wearing sunglasses and a big grin, running away in the other direction, carrying the da Vinci painting. So the idea being, you know, collusion, and everybody gets what they want. And anyone who's about to send us a text message saying, actually, it's Leonardo, just don't. Just don't. Don't, don't. Just don't. don't do it. <laughs> Delete it. <laughs> Walk away. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that PSA. Uh, Susan, do you have an object? I, I do. My, um, I have a, an anniversary object lesson, a little bit of a somber note, and that's just noting that today is the five-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre. Oh. Um, you know, 26 individuals. Uh, killed there that day, including 21st graders. Um, so just, you know, this is a national security podcast. And as we think about how we keep the United States of America safe and secure, you know, just sort of holding those families in your thoughts or, or prayers if you pray today. Um, and also taking a moment to meditate on sort of what um, what we owe to each other, um, what meaningful security is in this country and um, how maybe we can spend the next five years uh, being a little bit more productive, keeping people a little bit safer. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show archive someplace on the internet. Ben's not here, so I can't give him Wherever the hell it might be, Google it. <laughs> Spaghetti. You're smart. Lawfare. Figure it out. Rational Security. Um, <clears throat> we'll put the show page there, obviously, for today. You can find our object lessons there. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, follow us on Facebook. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave a nice rating and a review. It really helps people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Rex Tillerson and the Runaway Probes. <laughs> <laughs> the alien probes. It's okay, right? Yeah. Run away, run away. <laughs> it, it, it ties it all together. It kind of comes together yeah. in a mostly thin soup, but it's okay. <laughs> a Tillerson likes soup. A Tillerson likes soup. Uh, but our, it's a our, country band because it's Yeah, nice. exactly. Uh, our music is actually performed by the amazing Sophia Yan, who I am going to see in about three hours. And, and I saw her earlier this week, and uh, and she says she loves the band names. Nice. Shane, I'm so glad she sticks around for the end. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.